This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is part of our ongoing series about racism in Maine, and I'm going to be speaking with Natasha Wilson. Natasha is a doctoral candidate at the University of New Orleans in the Urban Anthropology track of their Urban Studies program. She's also a Master's of Social Work student at the University of New England here in Portland. Her research broadly focuses on cultural, collective, and interpersonal trauma, racial identity formation, whiteness, and spirituality. Ms. Wilson was born and raised in New Orleans and is still questioning the deeper reason she landed in Maine. Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Natasha. Thank you. So you're still questioning. That suggests it's been a process of questioning. Tell me where you are in that process now in terms of how it is that you got here. Hmm. I feel like I don't quite know the answer to that. I know what got me here. Um, and I can say a little bit about about that. Um, I came um, a few months after my brothers were murdered. My partner was already living here in Portland. And uh, I was finding it really difficult to just continue on with my doctoral research as, you know, just business as usual, although I was feeling a lot of pressure to keep going. But there was something inside of me that was like, you got to stop. You just got to stop and you got to sit with the gravity of what has just happened. And I couldn't do that in my life where I was. And so my partner invited me to come here. He thought this would be a really great place to figure things out or slow down or something. Um, and I visited before and it's, you know, really beautiful, like geographically, it's just really a beautiful place. Um, so I took him up on that offer and um, I landed here be, and because of trauma. <laughs> well, right. So you said that your two brothers were murdered. Mm. Can you just, can you tell me what happened there? Um, so they were both shot at the the same time same day place um my oldest brother um of the two who were murdered um had he'd been home from iraq i mean he'd been in iraq about eight years and he'd been home maybe about a year but he was going over to my younger brother's apartment to check on him because my younger brother had just gotten into this altercation with his neighbor over something really silly well his neighbor's dog kept pooping in his front yard. And I guess things spun out of control at some point. They got into this tussle. Police were called. We thought things were squashed and things were fine. And then later the neighbor came back and shot them both. And they died together. Um, And the only sort of peace that we had around this initially is literally they died in each other's arms. like that's how it was written up in the newspaper. Um, and so that they were together. They transitioned together. Um, and this happened in Virginia. This was right? this was in Virginia. We, none of my siblings, none of us moved home after Hurricane Katrina. Um, I did move home for a little while after the storm, but it was really difficult to be home. Um, but so my siblings are kind of scattered around the United States. Um, and yeah, none of us actually went home. We all agreed to be buried at home. So my brothers were buried at home and I'll be buried at home and we'll all go home to be buried. But um, yeah. Mm. yeah. And do you see their murder as a racially motivated murder? Or? Um, in a very complex way, not in a, a sort of 
it would be difficult to talk about it in the simplistic terms, I think, of racism. And I'm going to try to explain that. So the man who murdered my brothers um, is a black identified person. He, from what I understand, identifies as a black person um, or African-American. I can't always keep up with these terms. Um, But I think that there's something there around the way racism and white supremacy gets internalized in communities of color that would allow for that level of um, hatred to manifest, if that makes sense. I think there's something there. I don't know the, the the full connection. I feel like if the person who had murdered them was a white identified person, it would be easier to say, oh, this is racially motivated. But I think on some level, um, after I got to know some about the man who did murder them, I have been able to develop compassion because I can see the places in his life where racism shaped him as a human being. Um, I see. So when you think of this, was it racially motivated? So he was African-American identified and so were your brothers. Yes. So, but what I hear you saying is was when some way was his degree of rage, out of control, anger, partly an expression of the, of the suffering that he had. Borne. I think so. I really do. And I think um, in my family, we've all grieved in different ways. Um, and so for some of my family, like the fact that this this young man is in jail basically for the rest of his life um, has helped their grieving process. But for me, I just became more curious about who this person is who would take a life take two lives right how do you, did, how does what happened get there exactly and so that curiosity allowed me to really question what was his path what has his life been like and he didn't have an easy life and i think part of that has a lot to do with the fact that he is an african-american man in the united states i'm struck you know i'm struck that you have worked hard to find a way to have compassion and to understand him someone that it would be very easy to hate yeah i in general i really try i think part of why my my research has that i'm interested in spirituality it's because i'm interested in that thing that connects us all and i don't have a lot of use for hate like it doesn't serve me um and so yeah, I, I just feel like it's a part of my spiritual practice, like mm-hmm. compassion and forgiveness. And it's not easy, right? Like, I feel there's a lot of pressure to be angry or to have a different response. Um, but I have to be in alignment with who I feel I am. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back for a minute. Um, I want to just sort of locate us in time and space yep. here for a minute. So, um, Tell me a little bit about where you're from, how many brothers and sisters you have, um, and so on. So I'm from New Orleans. Um, I have seven brothers. I'm the oldest of all the children. Um, I'm the only girl. Uh, So, yeah, I had a very full (laughs) childhood. But I, I always say, like, my childhood was really protected when it comes to race. Um, because I come from a place where before Hurricane Katrina, 75% of the people looked like me. So I saw myself everywhere, you know. And I don't think I really understood 
this thing called race until I left New Orleans and went to college. And especially when I went away to college in Iowa, I was in a place where very few people looked like me. And so that was, I, I started to understand race when I left home. I feel like I was in this protective bubble in some way. I mean, yes, racism existed. It just looked different in New Orleans than the way that it looks in the rest of the world or the rest of the United States in some ways. Um, so, yeah, I just, I feel like we had our struggles, you know, as a family and so many ways we had our struggles. We had our own interpersonal crap and trauma and all that stuff. And yet New Orleans is this super, it's known for being this really, like this spiritual vortex. Like people go there for the food and the music and just the culture. I mean, and, and it's known for this African-based spirituality called voodoo, which is really an important part of my life and has been most of my life right alongside of Catholicism. I know a lot of people like, oh, it's freaky, but that's New Orleans holds these paradoxes, right? It's like there's this beauty beauty, and there's this abject poverty. You know, it's just it's just these, these paradoxes where people, um, I don't know, people learn to, to tap into joy. And I, yeah, I feel like that shaped me in a lot of ways and how I move through the world now. So you go from that world to Iowa for college. <laughs> An obvious, clear choice, yes. Absolutely. And, and, um, and so you make that and you start thinking about race in a really different way. Mm. And tell me how, you know, maybe give, give me an example of how you started thinking or a story maybe of something that happened to you that got you thinking about race. Yeah, I, um, this is, so, yeah. So I remember being in a classroom at the University of Iowa, and it was a theory class, and people were asking questions, and everyone, you know, like the professor would address their questions. And then when I would ask a question, first of all, the room would get super silent, and then other students, white students, would start answering the question for, you know, like, I'm like, I want the response from the professor. But it was, I was like, I didn't know. I was like, what is this? I don't know what this is. Okay, so I'm going to leave that alone. And then I. As if you were asking a dumb question. Exactly. Yeah. Kind of like that. And I remember we had this conversation about affirmative action in one of my classes. And. People thought I could speak to it because I was somehow there because of affirmative action. They assumed that about yes, you. Yes, yes. So like the, all, we, the, 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 the topic would come up and there would be like all eyes on the one black person in the classroom. You know, all these assumptions. And um, I remember it was my first time hearing, oh, you're really attractive for a, a black girl. Like my Dutch tutor actually said that to me. Your tutor said that to you? My Dutch tutor said that to me. Your male or female tutor? Female. Oh, Dutch tutor said really that to me. You're really attractive for a black person. Yeah, for a black girl. Oh. Yeah. Are you really pretty for a black girl? And I remember trying to learn Dutch, and I was just like, what has just happened? And then... Yeah, tell me. So Leah, let's <laughs> stay with that. So, so she says that to you, and you're stunned, and then what happened? I, did, I remember not saying anything to her. I think because I was stunned. I think I didn't know what to do with it. 
And so it just sort of lay there. And then we went back into tutoring. Now, is that the kind of thing where you afterwards were like rehearsing all the comebacks you wish you had had yes. ready? Yes. yes. And well, I had so many of those experiences where I was like, man, I should have said this or I. Do you but, remember what, what any of your comebacks were? But here's the thing. I remember that particular thing. I didn't have a I didn't even later didn't think of like a comeback because I think I was still sitting with what the hell does that mean? No kidding. What does that even mean? Um, I think now I, tr- you know, sometimes I can come up with something really glib in the moment, but not then because I was still trying to wrap my brain around what I was experiencing, you know. It, isn't it always that way? Like it's yeah. so stunning and blindsiding. Yeah. That in the moment, it's, it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so you get to Iowa and there's just multiple stories of moments where you're just like, whoa. Yeah. You feel very other mm-hmm. and devalued, the devalued other. Mm. Yeah. Did you finish your degree in Iowa? I did. I did. Excuse me. And then at some point you come back to New Orleans to pursue your doctorate. So actually, so this is, I actually was accepted into the PhD program at the University of Iowa. So right after I was done with my undergraduate degree, I went into the PhD program with just my bachelor's. And I, during my time there, Hurricane Katrina happened. And so after the storm, I had 12 members of my family move up to Iowa to be with you so yeah and so it was yeah that was a very interesting time so I had these 12 members of my family but then they all eventually left they couldn't I think like my had my my brother and his wife one of my brothers and his wife and children were there I think they couldn't deal with the 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 sort of cultural shock of Iowa and being surrounded by people who on the one hand was treating them with a lot of compassion because of what they had just gone through but on the one hand was really like othering them in a way they had not experienced. And I was still trying to figure it out for myself, so I couldn't figure out how to support them. So my brother left. He moved to Atlanta. He was like, I need to be around more black folks. He moved to Atlanta. My parents eventually went back um, home to New Orleans because they rebuilt their house. Um, so I was once they left, I was back in Iowa by myself. And I think I just had it. It was 2005. I was like, I think I'm just, I'm going to finish the master's piece. And I think I'm just, I'm out of here. And so that's what I did. I left and I was just going to finish because I'd done all the coursework. So I didn't need to be on campus. Um, I left and I moved back to New Orleans, but I took a job. And so I ended up working, doing domestic violence work for a long time. I was a um, program director uh, down in Louisiana and Eventually, I was like, I think I want to finish my Ph.D. And so a lot of what I worked on at UIUA was transferable over to University of New Orleans. Yeah. Did, did you find that having lived in Iowa for like six years or something? Right? Yeah, like five. Yeah. Did you find that coming back to New Orleans, you saw race in a different way? I did. I really did. I, I, I felt like I understood it more. Because race plays itself out in a very different way in New Orleans. And I think part of it is because of the history of our city. Um, We were a Spanish colony first, and then a French colony, and then a Spanish colony, and then a French colony, and then finally the Americans arrived. And people still talk about in New Orleans, like like, there's some folks who are like staunchly, they will only speak Creole, only speak French as a rebellion. They didn't like the American system. And part of the American system that they didn't like was the racial system. Because prior to that, 
there were all these complex racial designations. So octoroon, quadroon, all ways to talk about varying percentages of, of black mm-hmm. ancestry. Um, foolish in a w- lot of ways, but more complex. Um, and when this American system came in, it was very much you're, you're black, you're white, you're, you know, it was just, there wasn't a way to account for complex history, complex heritage. And so people were really resistant to that. And that that marks is still on our city, like in a lot of ways. So I always say I didn't really understand race until I left, like the way that it works in the United States, because ours system was really based on the Napoleonic code in terms of our laws, like who could marry who, who couldn't marry who. But it was very different when the Americans arrived. Were there laws against interracial marriage under the Napoleonic Napoleonic code? There were laws, but there was much more flexibility. So like there's, I don't know if you know about the system of plissage. I don't. So plissage is a French word that means placement. And so often, like wealthy white landowners, they would have a, a, their white family, but they would also have another family with a woman of color. And they would make sure those children got educated and would send those children off to get educated in France. So it was a very long history of this plissage practice. And so even though it wasn't legal, it was a system that women of color in New Orleans and other parts of Louisiana really wanted to enter into because it meant that their children, one, would probably be free and two, would have the opportunity to get educated in Europe. So, so yeah, we definitely just had a different, more complex experience of race and that's what I inherited. And so I didn't understand the way the sort of racial project worked outside of that. So part of what I'm sensing is that, you know, race and racism are really regional constructs. You know, I'm getting that sense. And so now I want us to come north to Maine. (laughs) So you arrived in Maine if your brothers were murdered two and a half years ago. How long ago was it? Uh, So I came here in September of 2012. I came here in September. I think I finally moved, made the full move, um, like October of 2012. And I was living on Munjoy Hill um, in Portland. And I remember like not really going outside without my partner when I first moved here. I wasn't really sure what that was about. But when I finally did kind of venture out on my own, I remember I was going to the the laundromat, um, which is in the next block from where we lived. And I just had this super racist encounter. It wasn't even a microaggression. It was like straight out racist encounter with the owner. So I walked in and I was gathering my things. Like I was moving things from um, from a washing machine to a dryer. And the owner just he came up to me and he had a pair of thongs, like underwear thongs in his hand. And he was like, did you leave these? And I mean, I hadn't. They weren't mine. I'd. They, they, they weren't mine. Um, I was like, no, I didn't really, you know, it's so awkward. I was like, what is this? But then, like, as I was as I was leaving, I heard him say something about those damn Africans. And I was like, because I didn't I didn't under, I didn't know about new Mainers or the, the recent African immigrant. 
I, I didn't know any of that. But he's, you know, he was like those damn Africans. And I was like, is he talking about me? You know, I wasn't sure. And so that was like my first experience walking out of my, like trying to do a thing on my own without my partner after Welcome I moved to Maine, here. Natasha. <laughs> oh, I know. Right. So that was really demeaning and offensive. It really was. It was mm-hmm. super um, demeaning and offensive. And I didn't, I knew what, I knew that that experience, had, especially when he said those damn Africans, like, that was racist. Like, that was pretty clear. It wasn't like, oh, am I questioning something here? Because I think that's what a lot of the sort of subtle ways racism plays out. It leaves people of color really questioning, like, what was that? Did that just happen? Am I overthinking it? Did it, did, you know? Um, but yeah, right. that wasn't the case. It was so overt. You <laughs> it had, was you really had no overt. doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I'm imagining that that made it harder to want to leave your apartment without your partner after that. It, it, it was. And it was really hard. Um, trying to explain this experience to my partner who is not a person of color. Um, so it was really interesting how race was playing out in my relationship as well, not just racism, but like really trying, like looking at how it impacts even relationships. It's just been lots of learning. Um, All right, because there's also a whole gender aspect there, like yeah. gender, sexuality, and racism, like all coming together. Yeah, there. I mean, that's the thing. I know we're talking about race, but, you know, none of this, not, we don't experience any of our identities in a vacuum, right? Oppression is an inter, you know, it's, it's what, what's the word I'm looking for? It's interconnected, right? It's interconnected. Um, and so is privilege, like these things in our identities, Right, we carry multiple identities, and so it's really been interesting because you know, like my master's degree is actually in feminist anthropology, so I've always had like really um, focused on gender, really focused on um, issues around sexuality as well. And I feel like in Maine, I've just been raced. It's a really interesting. I don't even know that verb. You've been raced. I've been raced. As if if being African American is like the only defining thing about you. Like I, you know, I've tried working like I when I the first job I found I was able to to have after I moved to Maine um was with a was with a um a, um, a sexual assault program mm-hmm. but I didn't feel any there was no level of connection around oh your this this is an organization and we're all we're women who run this organization it was it was you're black like I, it was it was just very interesting like I didn't feel an affinity around gender and that has always been my experience I've always been a part of some affinity group that no kidding and I find that sort of surprising in a way I wonder do you think that's because Maine is such a white state I, it, I that like it race is so um sticks out so much in such a kind of sea of whiteness that people can only think about that I I, I maybe Maybe you can say more about that because I, you know, I still scratch my head. I, I'm figuring, you know, I decided to add a layer to my research. I decided to do some um, life history narratives for my um, doctoral research, and I decided to collect some in Maine. Um, and yeah, I think there is something about um, whiteness that um, that creates these sort of blinders. And then when someone, another human being, shows up on the scene who doesn't 
fit inside of the sort of category, the, the sort of whiteness affinity group or whatever. Like it just you just stand out. You you feel very marked. And I think that is that has been the experience that I'm having here. And so I definitely think it has something to do with this. And I didn't know this when I first moved here, that white was the Maine was the whitest state in the country. I didn't know that. I feel like had I known that I may not have come. So I, I just. Yeah, it's intense. Yeah. So and your partner is, is a white man. Is yes. that right? And so does he does does it feel like you can talk about this with him and that he can get it with you? I feel over time he's getting it more, but he, even it in his love for me as just a human being. Like I whiteness has blinders up for him and he has to really work to dismantle those blinders. He really has to put the work in and I see it because everything else around him wants to render him unconscious. That's right. You know? Yes, I mean, in some ways, you just put your finger on why I'm wanting to do this series is mm-hmm. that the pressure, I think, of whiteness is for whiteness to be invisible, for us to not name it and not to be aware of it mm-hmm. and not even, you know, just think of it as a force. So I was fascinated when you said, you know, part of what your research is on is whiteness itself. Mm-hmm. And um, when you talk about the blinders of whiteness, tell me what tell me what you're learning about that as you study that. Mm. So as I do this research and I, I'm, I'm sitting with these narratives that I've collected, basically people's life stories about how they learned who they were as a racialized being, um, what I'm learning about whiteness is that it's formed for a lot of white-identified people in a moment of betrayal and young childhood, um, whether it's because they wanted to have a friend who was different or um, and they they and they asked about the the visible like like simple questions like I, I have narratives where um, people would say things like why why does my friend have brown skin or and their their family would go silent and wouldn't say anything about it or um, wanting to date someone when they were a teenager who was African American or not white and being told that. If they do that, that, you know, and not in and not in this way of saying we will disown you, although some of the narratives of older people that I interviewed, they grew up in an era where it was just like, if you do that, I will disown, you know, you will not be a part of this family. But there were more subtle as, you know, like in um, in like my generation, they received a more sort of subtle message about um, racial difference. And so. But what it translated to is like, I will lose the love of this caregiver if I associate with people who are different. And it's very subtle. But I'm talk. I want to talk about it in terms of trauma, because I think, you know, I think when we think of trauma, we think of things like what happened with my brothers. Right. That has definitely been traumatic. Um, But I think trauma has a lot to do with meaning and the meaning that gets attached to events. And so when you're a young child, if your first inkling of who you are as a being on the planet is you cannot associate with this person and you will lose my love because that's how children think, 
that's a moment of betrayal and that can be very traumatic. And so I'm framing it in, in that language in my research and I realize it's kind of controversial to do that, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, so I feel like what I'm learning about whiteness, I just have some brilliant quotes from participants I interviewed. Like I remember this one woman said, um, I want to be fully human again or something like that. And in order to do that, I have to question this thing called whiteness that keeps me separated from people. Um, and I just, you know, I've just found these interviews to be so powerful. Many of them, some of them, I, I, I'm like, wow, this is, this is painful. <laughs> Do you know, like it's painful to listen to um, these stories about how people come into their sense of being. Um, I, I remember reading in medical school, actually, the work of Tandeka, you, you may know her oh, work. Yeah. She writes about this too. She writes about how do we learn, how do white people learn to be white? Mm. And she said it's through the threatened withdrawal of love yep. from the people they're dependent on. Yeah. And, and I remember when I first read that thinking, wow, like it blew my mind because mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought about that. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of a, of a story that in my own life like that. Mm. Um, but it's very powerful because what bigger threat is there to a child than mm -hmm. the threat of withdrawal of love from the people that you are dependent on for your survival? Yeah. And it's like the code of whiteness. I mean, it makes sense. You know, I think back to what you said about the, the man who murdered your brothers. It's like, what deep wound is in his life that he would do something like that? Mm. And we think about racism, white racism. What deep wound is in the lives of these white people who, you know, that would explain this kind of hatred? Mm. What it just sort of feels like the same. And you're and you've named it. Mm. You're saying it's like the wound of really the loss of love and approval mm -hmm. by the people that matter the most. Yeah. If you don't toe the white line, as it were. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of what keeps it in place and not talking about it. Right. I remember one of the things I remember about the Thandika, um, I, and it wasn't even an article or something I read or a book, but she um, said that she had this exercise where she tried to get her white colleagues to talk about their friends and, and not because typically people will say things like, oh, my this my black friend or but to say name whiteness all the time. So speak about my white child or my white partner or my white friend have white people do this exercise. And she spoke about how there was so much resistance and people had a really hard time. And some people even sent her letters like so there's something about whiteness. And I think this is just indicative of power that needs to remain unexamined to maintain the status quo. Because if you examine it, then you start to see the cracks in it. You start to see um, what I almost call the illusion of it, right? Yes. Yeah, she calls it, I remember, she calls it the race game. Mm -hmm. And everybody yes. has to refer to their white friend, their white mother, their white sister, yes. and just keep naming it so yeah. it's not invisible. And yes, and the reaction is just like, People are horrified and totally uncomfortable when they change the subject and they leave the conversation. Yep. And um, so it's fascinating, though. I love what you said. I just want to take a second to think about it. So part of power is it needs to remain unexamined in order to maintain the status quo. And so that implies that to examine it would be to shake its foundations. Absolutely. And 
Say more what you well, understand about I that. Well, I think, you know, the, you, you probably know that Peggy McIntosh article about um, unpacking the invisible privilege of, of, of white privilege or white. Invisible knapsack. Yes. Yeah, invisible knapsack of white privilege. And so she starts to name all these things that are just invisible, right? Like, so flesh tone band-aids happen to be the flesh tone of not brown people, right? But people who are called white. Um so there are all these ways in which the norm remains unexamined. It's like a box of children's pastels, and the like pale pink beige color is skin tone. Mm-hmm. Yes, all yeah. that kind of thing. Yes, all that it's thing. It's the reference point. Exactly, right, where whiteness gets to be the universal, right, the human, like, so that it's never questioned. Um, and I think like that's an essential element of any sort of um, power dynamic. Because like the moment that you, again, the moment you start to question it, the moment you start to um, question the, its validity gets called into question. Um, and that's very scary. And I think it's scary not just in this sort of structural, um, this sort of structural sense. I think it's scary for, for people. Because I always see, as an anthropologist, I think I um, I was drawn to um, the profession of anthropology because of its stance on race, right? And it talks about race, that race is a social construct, that it was created in a particular historical moment to justify oppression, to justify exploitation and slavery. Um, and that it's it literally can be traced to a handful of men who later decide to call themselves white, um, and they came up with this racial schema, this racial classification system that was hierarchical, that is hierarchical. In order to justify. In order race. to justify colonization and enslavement. Um, what historical moment are we talking about, by the way? Are we talking in England? Where, where are we? So we're talking about the, the entire, like, the Enlightenment period, that era um, where there was all this pseudoscience around race. I think because this was right after that, that folks started to leave Europe and make contact with groups, other groups around the world. And I'm ignorant enough to know, I don't know when the Enlightenment was. Is that 1600s? What that's we... around the 1600s. Okay. Yeah. So that's when you first start seeing these conversations about race, the way that we think about it today, pop up in literature. Uh-huh. And when you say pseudoscience, we're talking about like the people measuring skulls and stuff yes, like that. Yes, pseudoscience. Right. right. Because r- race was born of that sort of pseudo- pseudoscience, yes. right? Yes. It's, you know, I, when I when I teach about race, I always start off, you know, making it clear that race is a social construct, and it's it's this it's based on these arbitrary characteristics, and we could ba- we could literally base race on anything. We could base race on blood type, but we don't. We could base race on a fingerprint pattern, but we don't. We base it on what we think we can see and judge with the you know with our with our eyes. I was reading um, Debbie Irving's book Waking Up White yesterday, mm. and she talks about how in a class where they they actually took DNA from a, class, a very mixed race group, and they found that there was and I, I guess this has been shown more and more. Although I learned this for the first time last mm. night, that there's more genetic variability within different absolutely. ethnic groups than there is between between black and them. White. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think people have any sense of that. People think of race as a biological. Absolutely, fact. they do. They think of it as a bio, a biological reality. Um, and the thing about race, I, I always find it's really difficult. 
on the one hand to have the conversation about racism and then have this other conversation about how race is a social construct and it's not real and it's an you know it's this illusion because we have this this byproduct of this system of race that is racism you know Ashley Montague said it like in the 1960s in a very elegant way that race is is the the greatest fallacy amongst our species that there is this thing called races within our species like it's the greatest fallacy with the most tragic consequences with the most tragic consequences hmm. and yet we live it and one of the reasons you know earlier i was saying that um it, it becomes dangerous and difficult when we question race and when we question it from the perspective of whiteness as whiteness is what undergirds this entire system of race i don't think folks really understand that is because you're starting to ask people, who are you? And for a lot of people, without race to anchor them, they don't know who they, they don't know who they are. What do you mean? I don't, I don't know if I understand that. So if I were to say, you are no longer white, right? It's a construct, you're not white, or you're not black, then who am I? And this is why I think I wanted to understand identity formation and the role that race had on identity formation. Because if on the one hand, it is a social construct, there's nothing inherent about it. For instance, my five-year-old son, I just, you know, he was, he came home from kindergarten. He was telling the story that one of his friends told him, and it featured a black lady in the story. And I, I, I remember being like, I haven't talked to my son about race yet. Like he doesn't know anything about, you know, I just, I, we haven't figured out how to talk to him about it because part of me doesn't want to reify the construct. And yet part of me wants to prepare him for the world that he's going to enter as a child of color. Um, and I asked him, I said, Josh, do you know what a, a black lady is? And he said, no. Right. And I said, do you know what a white lady is? He said, no. Right. So it's not inherent. No. We teach we teach it. Exactly. So, but for a lot of people, because it's become the basis of our identity, if you suddenly say, this is not, you're not white or you're not black or whatever, people don't really know who they are. And that is, that to me, that's the tragedy of, of this, of, of race in general, is that it was a system that was created to keep people disconnected. It was not a system that was created to to bring about more connection. It was actually created to enhance fragmentation. I always and does that make sense? And hierarchy. Well, yeah, and the the fragmentation is through the hierarchy because on some level, there's this internal like we internalize the meaning of race, and I think the thing about whiteness is because. Whiteness sits at the top of the racial hierarchy. White people internalize white supremacy. They internalize they're better than, even though they won't ever say that, and it seems absurd to most white people to think that they might hold these thoughts, but we see it play out every day. Uh, yes, it's like so unconscious, and then it's so uncomfortable to make it conscious. Yeah. And, and to realize like, the feeling of entitlement that it that is justified by the feeling of superiority. Yeah. And I think, yeah. So maybe that helps me because I'm still, and part of me is still sitting here thinking, why is examining whiteness so threatening? Like, why is it, why is it threatening? And I'm, 
and I think what you just said takes me back because it's really saying there is no basis for the consolidation of power that you have. I think you just said it beautifully. And I also think we have this this myth of um, that we we have we, we live in a culture that um, is based on our on our merits, the things that we've earned, right? And so whiteness sort of flies in the face of our sort of collective cultural identity, right? As a, as as a country, right? We believe that people earn what they get, and if you're struggling, it's just because you didn't work hard enough. So once you start bringing in whiteness and you you start talking about, yeah, there are a whole bunch of unearned privileges that you get just by way of being white, it makes people uncomfortable because it, it also then starts to question a deeper layer of identity around our, our nation, our nationality, right? Our sort of cultural value system, which on the surface we say is about meritocracy, but we know that that that's not it's not the case you know what it makes me think of is um i think about um if i work with someone who inherits a lot of money hmm. that they didn't earn and then it's really complicated to feel like they own that money and it's really complicated to figure out how to use it because they never really feel it's yours hmm. and i think maybe what you're saying is that sort of white privilege is is exposing that same thing. Like, it, oh, I have this thing I didn't earn, and now I now I feel very uncomfortable. Well, because it really, it goes against, like, everything I think we learn. We learn that the United States, right, it's, it's what what's our thing, equal for all or justice for all? I don't, I'm sorry, I'm not. You're a, speaking to a Canadian, great, I don't know. I know, I'm, like, I'm not a great American. But, you know, we have this, this, this value system that we, that we constantly, um, speak about like you um like we're all equal one and nation uh under god something something, something in the middle <laughs> something i don't want to is it written on a dollar bill we should pull it maybe out. we should pull out a dollar bill or the constitution <laughs> or gabe something. do you know what it is type it out for me <laughs> it's like what nation uh, i know there's one nation under god indivisible with liberty and justice oh, for all there you go there we are um so that's our sort of that's you know, my son is learning that right now in school. And I think you really believe that. And it, for a lot of people, it's like, I really, I'm working hard. I've really earned this stuff. I've really, really worked hard. I, and I just read an article today. I think it was, um, I know it was the New York Times, but it was a study that showed that poor kids who do every, literally the articles, like poor kids who do everything right still, they, they don't, um, they don't do any better. I saw it they too. don't do any better than white kids who do everything. Not white kids, but um, 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 what's the word? Rich I'm kids. Rich kids. I'm so sorry. Like oh, it's not the end of the day. I'm fading. Um, but rich kids that do everything wrong. So I think there is just a deep discomfort with being able to hold simultaneously. Yep, I have all these privileges I didn't work for, that I didn't earn, and yet this flies in the face of this cultural value system that I've inherited that makes me think that, you know, I pulled myself up by the bootstrap somehow. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm white. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a loss. It's a real loss. Like I think about 
as a Canadian here, you know, like during presidential elections, and mm. I listen to every candidate, regardless of party, sort of talk about, we are the number one best country in the world. They sort of need to affirm that kind of thing. And I think, and, and to really own racism, to really look at how profoundly racism is woven into the whole fabric of this country mm. Um, undermines that assertion so deeply. It's hard to it, it it's is. hard to look at it because the the national pride is something people feel so deeply about absolutely. here. Absolutely. And so when you bring in conversations about white privilege, and then if you start to peel the layer back, because again, even the concept of privilege, it sounds so benign, but that privilege is born of violence, right? That privilege is born of oppression. And so it's not a benign thing to have privilege. If you have this privilege, it's because someone else is being oppressed. Like the flip side of privilege is oppression. That's how they exist. And so that that's very uncomfortable. And so when you, and I'm saying un, uncomfortable is, um, is putting it lightly, I have to imagine. Right. When you say privilege is really rooted in violence, it's like whoosh, all mm-hmm. of a sudden the conversation isn't quite so fun. No. It's like, not. Yeah, it's very it's serious. Yeah. I want to come back to your experience in Maine because mm. you've been here now almost two years. Yep. And you began by telling me that, uh, you know, a story about really overt racism. Mm. But I know that so much of the way that racism expresses itself today, at least interpersonally, is mm-hmm. in much more kind of subtle, mm. um, what, what are ca- often called microaggressions. Yep. And tell me a little bit about how you've experienced that in your time here in Maine. So, again, when I moved to Maine, I was moving here um, fairly recent after the uh, murder of my two younger brothers. And on the eve of the anniversary of their murders in March um, of 2013, um, someone set our building on fire that we were living in on Monjoy Hill. And uh, my cat died in the fire, but all the pets that lived in the building died, so the neighbor's pets, our cats. Um, and so I remember after my brothers died, I um, or were murdered, I'm trying to, because sometimes I think when I say they died, it's because I don't want to deal with the gravity of that someone took their life. Um, uh, I had a sense of community when I was living in Boston, and so I felt like a lot of people surrounded me and um, it was, there were people across lines of, of quote unquote race and gender that really held me and I felt affirmed in a lot of ways. But when I was in Maine, like I didn't have, I didn't have a sense of community. My experience of, of first going into like starting the workforce here in Maine was of not being invited to events that were planned um, amongst my coworkers or um not being invited to participate in conversations or I would sit down at the conference table and no one would sit next to me or no one just come up and talk to me. It was just very, it was a very different experience and, and, and coming off of the trauma of a fire and not feeling held um, or feeling like there was a sense of community. In fact, um, which is so weird because we lived right across the street from a fire station. I know. <laughs> We live right across. We lived right across from a fire station, um, but afterward, like because of the person that set the fire, m- what do you know about that? How, wh- why did that happen? So someone walked in our building, um, 
and they went up to the third floor, which was the the folks who actually own the building. Um, and they just walked in their house because they left their door. They usually leave their doors unlocked. And I think prior to me moving in with my partner, he left the doors unlocked as well. Um, I think there was just this sense of you can do that. Um, and so this person walked into their apartment and was demanding food and water. The person was clearly like inebriated and, um, and so our neighbors gave him the food and the water and then asked him to leave. And then he, he wouldn't leave. And so he had to push him out of the door. And then finally he pushed him out of the door. He called the police. But by the time that happened, he had gone down to the second floor where we lived and went into our storage closet and just set it on fire. And he, yeah, the person who did this um, was from Guatemala, from what I understand. I didn't go to the trial. And I think part of the reason I didn't go to the trial is that there was this sort of um, racist response to the fire. Um, like literally, um, you know. Because the arsonist was a man Because of color? the arsonist was a man of color. It oh. was that same damn immigrants or worse you know there's some things that i just don't want to say because i um mm -hmm. right contributes to a culture of yeah hate. and i don't like how it feels in my body mm -hmm. um and so um and so i felt very much like well i'm a person of color and my cat died you know what i mean like this is so i didn't feel held at all and i actually felt really try like i felt like that the event was so traumatic and Probably in ways, I feel like I've struggled more with talking about the fire than I have with talking about my brothers. And I really think it's because after my brothers, I felt like there was a sort of communal response in terms of um, support. And around the fire, I think part of the reason that support didn't happen is because there was there was all this sort of racist air around the around the fire and who set the fire Um and then I was dealing with these microaggressions at work that I couldn't necessarily name. I just knew that I wasn't a part of of, of the group, right? Um, mm -hmm. like, so there's this feeling like you're not belonging. Yeah. And then you have this traumatic thing happen, right? You have this fire. Um, so I feel like I've, yeah. Hmm. And it just continued when I went to the University of uh, New England. You know, like I... I remember like walking into a class and, you know, like the whole class is white. They're not, you know, there are no people of color. I'm the only person of color. And typically like I'm a super social person. It's just kind of how I, how I am. And there was no reception for that level of, and again, it was, I would have these experiences where I would go into seminar and then I would look around and, you know, the tables are full, but then there are these two empty spots next to me, you know, like this sort of, and I'm like, what is this about? Like, do I stink? <laughs> she smells her armpits. Yeah. So I'm like, is it, do I stink? Like, I don't know, but it's, you know, the same sort of thing. No one talks to you or, or talks to me and, um. Yeah, it was it was just a very isolating experience. Or then I think that then I started having these panic attacks at a certain point. Um, uh, it was my second semester at the University of New England. I started having panic attacks. And I remember it was the first day of class of one of my um, one of my seminars. And I was sitting in class and a student made this comment 
So one student was going to visit some place in California, and this student said to the other one, don't go to that place because it's so ghetto. And um, I remember hearing that, and I was, I don't know why I took that inside of myself. And I, you know, maybe because, like, I grew up in the, in a ghetto. I love people who live in ghettos. Like, the you don't know anything about the ghetto. So there are all these ways in which I was internalizing. But it, you know, when you say don't go to that place because it's so ghetto, you're basically saying don't go there because poor people live there and probably black people or brown people live there. Don't go there. And it's and it's bad. And it's bad, right? Yeah. There's the association. Um, and I, we, were, we went on break for during that class and I just didn't go back to class. I didn't go back the whole semester. And when it was time for my next class, the next time for that class to meet, I had a full-blown panic attack. I thought I was having a heart attack. I was, and I was like, what's going on? And I realized I was having a full-blown panic attack. And it was because that wasn't my first experience of like a microaggression. Like it had just been cumulative. Um, this, my first semester in my field placement in Lewiston, I knew nothing about the racial history of Lewiston, but it was my first time in life being called a nigger. And so I go to my practice class because I was like, how do I go and work with clients after being called a nigger? And I literally shared this with my class. And the uh, advice that I got was to compartmentalize it and show up and be professional. I was like, you don't get this, you know? Um, so meanwhile, your whole body is like reverberating yes. in shock and like overwhelmed. And I'm being told to compartmentalize and be show up as a professional. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the response to this. That's a, and I even feel like that was um, a microaggressive like, comment, right? Oh, oh, the comment from your supervisor. Yes. Yes, right. Yeah. Microaggressive, yes, and born of like just so completely not getting it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are that the underlying message is that you should be able to handle that, right? Like that's, if you're a professional. If you're a professional. And uh, part of what, and this may have not been the intention of the people, because I bought this to the classroom. Um, and so the people who shared um, their thoughts, I don't think that they came from a necessarily, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I hate that when I can't think of my words. Um, I also say often, I think my brain is still healing from trauma. And I say, I say it often because my memory has not been the same since the fire. And for me, the fire and the panic attacks around racism, they are together like this. Um, and so I feel like my brain has not fully healed. Um, and so I forget a lot of stuff lately. You know, it's really, really, really interesting how this stuff plays, how it works. Um, but I don't think that people's suggestions or whatever it is that they were sharing with me were like it was coming from a malicious place. Um, I just really think that there was a sense that you're black, get over it. Like, at least this is how I was interpreting it, you know? Um, yeah, and yeah, it was being couched in this language around professionalism. But there's so many experiences. I had the, you're pretty for a black girl thing happen here in Maine too. You know, I've had that happen here. It's just, mm. yeah. So it's unrelenting. It is. It is. It is. And I think I, part of my theory around 
because I experienced microaggressions when I was in when I lived in Iowa, but I didn't have panic attacks. Like I didn't have this sort of response. And I think the difference is I had access to Chicago. It was like two and a half hours away. And so I could drive and be with people of color. <laughs> I also had family in Chicago. So I literally was in Chicago like every weekend when I lived there. Um, so you had a lifeline. I did. I don't have that here. Um, I don't have that in Maine. We're going to have to stop, Natasha. Okay. And I, I want to ask you one question in closing. Yeah. I know that part of your research is on what we call post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. And you've been describing how trauma, you know, trauma literally affects our brain. It affects mm-hmm. our nervous system because our whole nervous system is so in shock from something, such a blow. And, mm-hmm. and then so many cumulative smaller blows, mm-hmm. you know, in this kind of unrelenting fashion. Um, what is post-traumatic growth and how mm-hmm. are you studying that in terms of, of race? So I'm just going to speak about my own life um, because I think sometimes I w- researchers don't always say this, but I think we research areas that are connected to our own life and our own growth. Um, and sometimes it just seems safer to do it with other people, but it's really about us on some level. Um, <clears throat> so I think post-traumatic growth, it, it ha- it's this moment when there's a shift from um, – being completely defined by the traumatic moment or event and finding a way to shift the energy of it to something that's growth fostering and is about creating and has the air of connection, creating connection. And so what I did after a lot of, I spent the summer break like doing lots of therapy um, and re- just really reconnecting. And I always say it's hard to talk about spirituality sometimes because I think it just gets conflated with religiosity so often. And yet for me, it's not about religiosity at all. I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a part of any religion. I don't even believe in, some would say I'm probably atheist. Yet I'm like, I think of myself as super spiritual. And for me, that means remembering that we all literally come from the same source this is can be straight physics but for me physics is spiritual right like I find it um incredibly moving and awe-inspiring to think that we all just come from this bang of a moment or you know that literally the same atoms that are moving through you are the ones that are moving through me that to me is just the ultimate experience of of a spiritual um of a for me it's spiritual um and so for me, like doing spiritual work over the summer break, just really getting grounded again in the truth of who I know I am, which is why when I was sharing this story about teaching the racism class and folks being afraid to offend me and I'm saying I'm not offendable because I know who I really am. Um, we didn't record that, by the way, and we should. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we'll come back to that. Okay. It um, has, a, has a lot to do with having this deeper understanding about how we all, as Thich Nhat Hanh, one of my favorite teachers, how we all interbe, we all inter are. Um, and so really like grounding myself in that, I don't know, I came back this semester really determined to make something, to make a shift, to make a change, because otherwise I'm just swallowing, 
right? I'm swallowing the disrespect. I'm swallowing the disregard to my humanity. I'm swallowing that. And that doesn't work for me. Um, and it doesn't work for me to be silent either. I, I really tried it. It does not work for me. It makes me sick. Like literally, physically, it makes me sick. Um, so I really did some work around forming this microaggression committee, anti-microaggression committee. Um, actually, a couple students that I did a, a project with, um, they were really instrumental in creating um, this microaggression committee within the School of Social Work. Um, and we put on this event recently, which was the Mosquito in the Room event, which was a way to create storytelling around um, around microaggressions that I've so for me, that was a moment of post-traumatic growth, right? It's like taking this really shitty experience and shedding light on not just the shittiness of the experience, but the opportunity for growth and learning. And for me, again, like that is what post-traumatic growth looks like for me. And yet I'm still making sense of it all. Okay, so let me say that back to you. So you're <laughs> saying what post-traumatic growth is for you is the opportunity to take a wound and turn it into an opportunity for learning. Yeah, like, did I, can to I redeem the wound. I have to beep it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes. That's right. We should have went over that. <laughs> I know. I should have. My bad. My bad. I should have told you. Um, that's okay. But yes, you take to take a really painful experience and turn it into an opportunity for learning and, mm -hmm. and growth. Mm -hmm. And connection. And connection. Yeah. Yeah. So let me go back because I want, I want to ask you that story okay. about the students. And then I know Gabe is, is dying to ask you a bunch of things, too. Um, so let me just think how to feed in an uh, intro to you telling that story that works here. Um, okay, you know what I'd like to do is ask mm. you the question over about okay. post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And then will you say, well, let me take an example of a story. And then take that story of the students asking you, because we didn't mm. record it yet. Mm. I haven't even really heard it yet. Okay. I don't even know what their <laughs> questions are. I can't <laughs> wait to hear. Um, so, so I'm going to ask you the question over. And if you can say, well, let me just tell you this story. And then, you know, feed that back into the, like, opportunities for learning. Anyway, okay. Because it will be seamless. And steer me. Because it's, like, my brain. Okay, I'm steering yeah. you right okay, now. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what I'm going to say is I want, I'm going to ask you a question about post-traumatic growth. And mm -hmm. you're, like, say, well, let me give you, let me tell you by way of an example. Okay. And then tell me that story and then we'll feed it into what you just okay. said. Okay. Gabe can splice it in. Okay. Does that work? Yep. Okay. I think so. Okay. Um, so, Natasha, I feel like I'd like to talk to you for so much longer, but I need to ask you just one last question in closing, which is, uh, I know a topic of some of your research which is about post-traumatic growth. Mm. And what do you mean when you use that expression? So, I gave the example of the mosquito in the room event. Well, out of that... Um, uh, let me stop you right now. Cause, oh. cause so, we're going we're gonna to redo so that whole answer oh. you already gave. Oh, because it's so important. Like the we're gonna get to in it. the room is connected to why I was teaching this class. Oh, it comes after that. Yes. Oh, oh, I misunderstood yeah. you. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Let's think about how it is. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know the chronology. Um, because we have to keep that. Well, I'm gonna try. I'm, I'm trying to get the answer. Also, be somewhat brief mm. while including the story, just because we're we're so way over time. So how about I just tell you the story? No, but okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I know, but it has to be a response to a question oh, so that it feeds okay. in. You know. Mm. Mm. So can I frame it as? Um, so another experience of post-traumatic growth for me um, is when I was invited to teach the, um, it's called HIPSE, Human Behavior, no, HBSE, Human Behavior and Social Environment. I can't 
remember the, but we call it HIPSI. Um, and it's the class where we cover oppression on identity and social justice and all that stuff. Um, and so I was invited to come in and teach the, the section on racism. Um, and had I still been operating from the same traumatized self, same wounded in the same way, the wound is still there. It's just, it's moving in a different direction. Um, but had I not started to do some some healing and growing around this wound that is the result ultimately of racism, I would not have been able to go into that class because the class, both classes, well, the second class, there were a few people of color, but the first class, there were no people of color. There was actually one woman who was a woman of color, but you couldn't tell just from looking. It's the fallacy of race once again. We think we know something about somebody just by looking. Um, but in each class, students, white identified students would say to me, I, I really want to ask this question, but I'm so afraid of, of saying something that would offend you. And in both classes, what I said to them was that I'm not offendable. And the reason is, is because I know who I am. I know that there's a social construct and I know who I am. Yes, we all exist in these, these constructs, but ultimately I know who I am and who I am is not offendable. And for me, that was a moment of reclaiming, not just my humanity, but reclaiming their humanity as well. Because when you think you can offend someone, I think it's because you've lost some part of your own humanity that you would think you're so separate from another person that you asking a question about the human experience could be offendable. And so, okay, so, so let me push yeah. back a sec. Cause yeah, I, push back. Cause, because what is, so I want to ask you a couple quick questions. One is, what does it mean that you're not offendable? Because someone can ask a question that is downright thoughtless and um, demeaning. And how come that wouldn't offend you? Because I know who I am. I keep going back to I that. I know. Tell me what that means. <laughs> so, again, I could take it, it could, I can explain it in terms of physics or I can, Oh, I can play, explain it in terms of anthropology, right? We all trace our ancestry back to East Africa. Every modern Homo sapiens sapien, we're all African. We all come from East Africa. Race is a myth. It's a myth. I know who I am. I am not the myth. The myth doesn't define me anymore. Uh-huh. Okay, I know I who I am. Start to get it. Yeah. I start to get it. Yeah. And you know that we're all connected. Yes. And I know ultimately we're all made of the same stuff. We all come from the same source, whether you take that in terms of physics, or you take that in terms of anthropology, you take it in terms of human history. Ultimately, we all descend from the same place. And so what, so having, you know, expressed their fear, what were their actual questions? So people just ask questions. Um, people really wanted to say that racism didn't exist, right? Um, there are people who really hold on to the, and even gave me pushback when I said that, you know, race is a social construct. And they're like, well, you know, you're here talking about racism. So if race isn't real, then why are you here talking about racism? A racism is real. Yes. That's the connection to make, right? Like, yeah, we, we all deal with this crappy construct, right? We all deal with this crappy construct of race. And racism is, is, is the natural sort of like fallout 
of a racial hierarchy. When you have a racial hierarchy, you're going to have racism. And so even though the hierarchy is not real, it's an illusion, the result of it isn't. And if we want to talk about really trying to understand things like health disparities, which is what that class ultimately is about, is like looking at health disparities. If we really want to understand how these disparities manifest themselves, we really have to look at the impact of racism on the human person. And we can talk about that. So I think a lot of the questions that I got were just these questions where people really wanted to defend um Defend the myth or, or be in denial that racism is real and that it that it differentially impacts people. So. So if you're not offendable, are you at least tired <laughs> of that? It's, you know, no, at this point, I'm not. That's the thing. I, I know. I know. I know. I know. It sounds strange. But the fact is, like when I feel like when each of us, when we're doing the work that whether you think this is why you are on the planet to do this work, if the work is in alignment with what you feel you're called to do, it doesn't feel like work. So for me, and again, my, my position on both race and racism, it's re it really comes from people like Dr. King and Gandhi. You know, Dr. King talked about race as a, racism as a spiritual disease. Right. So it was a this disease that really had to do with like fostering a sense of 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 disconnectedness, like in the human family. And if you look at it the same way, like maybe a cancer, right, or some autoimmune condition where the self is turning in on the self, that's ultimately what racism is. It's like we're turning in on ourselves. We're literally one species and we're believing that we're we're not. And so. There's all this fallout because of that. So I hope that makes sense. Because I know for some people, they're like, what the hell? Are, what are you talking about? You know, Natasha Wilson, <laughs> thank you so much. You're it's welcome. Been really, it's been very inspiring and powerful to talk to you. I really appreciate you being my guest. I like to end the show with resources. <clears throat> and um, I wondered if there's a book. You can take your time to answer this. Um, I wonder if there's a book that you would really like to recommend or a website or some mm. resource that oh, I wish has I been powerful for you. Um, so I mentioned like the autobiography of Dr. King was, is really powerful um, because I think in there, and I think that's when I started to make the links but also between racism and trauma when he was suicidal. Dr. King was suicidal. A lot of people don't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, but it really spurred, like, I think his is a really great example of post-traumatic growth, even in the midst of constant um, onslaught of, of traumatizing experiences. Um, I I think I would really recommend um, the Vendika book. Yeah, actually, just looked up the title. Yep. It's Vendika, and the title is Learning, Learning to, to Be, be White, yep. Money, Race, and God in America. America, yep. I would recommend that book. I would also recommend... Um, um, it's uh, anything by Tim Wise for white people who really want to get a deeper understanding of, of whiteness um, that's written not in like academic language. So um, let me just, so he's written so many, maybe we could just start with one of them. So White Like Me, Dear White America, Colorblind, what do you think? Where I think any of those would be great for people who are really just starting 
okay. these explorations. So here's what we're going to do. Let's start back because we're going to try to say this as concisely as possible mm-hmm. so we can use as much of the time to okay. listen to you. So um, let me ask the question again, and I would say let's say the 10 Dacre book and a Tim Weiss book and call can it. Can I see the qu- <laughs> Yeah. So there's which one should we say here? Um, I, I'm going to say Dear White America. Okay. Yeah. So that one. And then the 10 Dacre book, do you remember it was like, what was it? Um, Learning, Learning to, to be, be white. white. You got that one? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. So uh, let me ask you the other one. Um, and then, Gabe, I haven't forgotten. All right. Um, so, Natasha, I always like to end the show with resources. I wonder if there's like maybe a couple of books that you would recommend that you think are really on about this topic. So, Vendika, again, because I think she sets it up and frames it. So, the Vendika book um, is um, Learning to be White, which really shows like whiteness as a construct. Um, and then I would really recommend almost anything by Tim Wise, but Dear White America, I think, is a really good book. Wonderful. Thank yeah. you again so much, Natasha. You're welcome. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole show and you would like to, or you'd like to email the link to a friend because you know they need to hear it, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. There you can subscribe to get every week an email with a link to that week's show. You can also download any of the previous podcasts. Um, You can make a comment, request a new show, email me. I'd love to hear feedback from you about this show. Um, You can also download the show to your smartphone so you can listen to it during your commute. You can listen to us on iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.